The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Your copy of God's Word now to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, we are continuing in our series. This is the second message in part two of God of Glory, as we've been working passage by passage through this second book of the Bible. And so as you're turning there, let me just ask this question uh, for you this morning. Do you recall when you first learned of God's law? (laughs) Do you recall when you first understood that God had a moral standard for your life and you felt the weight of conviction from these standards? For some, it was really like it was a, a, a very distinct moment in your life. Others of you, you know, we've, we've forgotten what we ate for breakfast this morning. I fall into that category. But we, uh, among us here, some of us in a room this size, maybe you uh, first learned of the Ten Commandments long ago as a kid in, in kids' ministry or a backyard Bible club or from your parents or grandparents, and you've known that there are these ten words, these ten commandments out there. Others of you, maybe it wasn't until adulthood. She even began to think that there was a God and he might have some standards, some commands for how we are to live. There may be others in here that uh, are still yet unaware of what these are, what they might be. You know they exist, but you couldn't name them. And, but you do remember those that a few years ago, some people were really upset because they were removed from courthouses. But imagine then the Israelites in our story here in Exodus. The narrative that we are journeying our way through, the, these words here, and where they are at now recently liberated from their Egyptian captivity, slaves and under the uh, domineering oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptian taskmasters. And a lot has happened in Exodus, hasn't it? A lot has happened as they were set free and the Red Sea has happened and all those things. And now God's people are at the base of Mount Sinai. And though they are several months removed from those monumental events, they're likely still processing everything that has happened. Wondering, what, what, what did we just see? What are the, what's the significance here? Who is this God that is leading us? And what is it that God is preparing us to do? They're now at the base of Mount Sinai, preparing to hear from God. And, and there's, as we'll find here in a, in a moment, there's some severe weather happening. Thunder and lightning and trumpets blasting. It is, is like the weather we had here on Wednesday night, right? Thunderstorm warnings, our phones going off with those alerts, and uh, you know, half of us hiding in either our bathrooms or our closets, trying not to be swept away. But they didn't have the benefit of the safety. They're out in the wilderness. The, these events, God is preparing to meet with them. This severe weather, they have given their full and undivided attention to what is happening. Now, even I I doubt they really grasped the historical significance of it all, how God was inaugurating his Mosaic covenant with the people here and at the same time revealing his moral will as he would lay out these Ten Commandments for his people. We have the benefit of hindsight, of looking back and grasping even a, a bit of the significance here. And I think as we uh, will read it here in a minute and as we uh, look to Exodus 20, we can grasp this central application. And it is this. It will be on the screen. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down, that when God speaks, we listen. 
At the, at the heart of, of God speaking these words, of laying out his law, the central application for us this morning is when God speaks, we listen. Let's try that again. When God speaks, we listen. By listen, I mean we, we, we listen up. We listen attentively. We listen actively. We lean in with a humble heart, ready to obey, ready to submit, eager to be taught. What I'm not speaking here of the, is of the selective listening that you know, many of us, uh, maybe the husbands here, are, are pretty good at. And that's, I'm only plagued with, with that, I think. That's selective listening. If we hear things and it goes in one ear and out the other, right? No, when God speaks, we listen. So let's hear what he has to say. I'm going to read Exodus 20, the first 21 verses for us now. Look in your Bibles and uh, let's, uh, let's listen to what the Lord has to say. It says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates." For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now this is God's word for God's people. These words familiar to you, church? Have you read the Ten Commandments lately? You're familiar with them? Probably likely so. These words here referred to in many ways as the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, or the Ten Words. You should know there's some debate in scholarly circles about what actually make up the Ten Commandments. How do we divide these words? The debate really centering around verses 3 through 6 and then verse 17 of should verses 3 through 6 be one command of loving God or having no other gods and having no idols? Is that one or two? And then in verse 17 is coveting one or two. I think that as we look at the totality of Scripture here, it's best to view uh, uh, three verses 3 and 4 as separate commands and in verse 17 then as one command that just overarchingly prohibits coveting. And so as we look to these 10 commands, they break down kind of nicely into two different categories. 
Commands 1 through 4 and verses 1 through 11 are those vertical commands. Those commands that uh, uh, speak to and set the foundation for our relationship with God. That call us to go vertical. That could be condensed down into the command to love God. That we have been set free and prepared to live for Him by loving Him. And then the remaining six, commands 5 through 10, found in verses 12 through 17, uh, could, could be condensed down into our horizontal relationship or to love others, to love your neighbor. As we are set free then from our sin, we are preparing to live for him by loving other people. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? As we, the, in the New Testament, as uh, the, they tried to pin Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, what's the most uh, important commandment? You say, I love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And even within now the Ten Commandments, we see how they are captured in the condensed down version into the law. And so this chapter here really sets the foundation then for the moral will of God, the, of the Old Testament here, condensed down into two and then expanded out into hundreds through the rest of the, old, uh, the, the Pentateuch here, the first five books of the Bible in the coming verses. It's expanded out into these case laws, how they would be specifically applied then here, at, uh, or here for the Israelites. And so we're going to look at them more next week. You know, buckle up because uh, we're going to try to go through all like 600 of them. So... Service is going to be a little longer. Just kidding. It won't be uh, any longer than normal, but we are going to look at them. So uh, here's, here's the fundamental truth. When God speaks, we listen. That's right. And when we listen, we listen this way. Those first 11 verses teach us this, to love God only. To love God only, to love Him exclusively, to love Him solely. There is no sharing of our love for anyone else but to love Him only. Now the chapter begins with this one we're told that God has spoken all these words. And just to be clear about who this God is. This isn't a, a, a polytheistic God or the many gods or one of the many gods from uh, Egypt or any other uh, religion of that day. This is the God of the Israelites. Yahweh, the one revealed, I am the Lord, back in chapter 3, who made himself known at the burning bush. It is this God, the personal God. He says, I am the Lord, your God, the one who has come near and covenanted with them, who's chosen this people amongst all the nations of the earth, and he has chosen them for himself. He is the Lord, their God, who has done something very specific, brought them out of the land of Egypt, brought them out of slavery. Lest there is any question about who did the work to deliver them, to rescue them, it was their God. Again, bearing witness to those themes of redemption that we see all across the pages of our Bible, right, church? The theme of redemption, how God has brought us out of slavery and into his presence, out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. It is this God. It is this God. And before the laws are even laid out, as the ten words are laid out before them, God effectively is telling them, you are loved. Before he lays out the, the commands, before he tells them what to do, he reminds them of who is speaking and of his great love to rescue, to deliver them. And this is so important for us to understand because when it comes to the Lord, it first begins with his grace. 
Any sort of relationship with the Lord first begins with his grace, his love, and then come the commands, then come the laws, the demands in which to live uh, with and for him. And the beautiful thing is not only is he, does it start with love, but even he gives us then the grace and the love to keep his word to do what he has asked us to do. And so you can think of it this way in in the scriptures. When it comes to God's relationship with humanity, all throughout, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from then to now, you can think of God's relationship with his people like this, love before law. Love before law. And it is a grave mistake to get that backwards, church. To, to start that way, even when it comes to our, our, our Bible or our relationship with God and how he saved us or our relationships with others, write that down. Get that into your mind. When, when it comes to the Lord, it is always love before law. And it's, it's a mistake because some people read their Bible and they'll think like, oh, the Old Testament, it's all about, it's all about the law. It's all, he's a God of wrath there. And then Jesus comes and man, then, it's, then he's a God of love. Then, then, he's, then he's great. And no, 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 the, it's, it's not like that. Even in the Old Testament, even in the midst of all the laws and all the, uh, some of the, the gory details of the Old Testament, when it comes to God's relationship with his people, it always starts with his love. Same is true even as he saves us. Everything, uh, it, all my ducks in a row, and I've cut out all this in, and I've prettied myself up, and I've done everything that I need to do, then God will love me. And there is no greater lie that has damned people to eternal separation from God than that. It is always his love, church. Maybe you today are thinking, man, you're, you're on the fence. You're wondering, is this, is this stuff even true? Can I even meet these demands? And, and it is the law that is keeping you from coming to Christ. It does, because we can't. But it is his love, his grace, his mercy, the forgiveness that he offers through Jesus Christ that we are saved. Embrace his love. Come to Christ this morning. Accept what he has done. It has always been and will always be through his love that we can even attempt to live for him. As we come to our New Testament, all through the pages of Scripture, then we're told that it's in love that He predestined us. It's in love that He adopted us. It's in love that He grows us and sanctifies us. And it's His love that will keep us and persevere us to the end. Why did He save us? Because of His great love with which He loved us and the mercy that He bestowed upon us. Church, isn't that awesome? Isn't that glorious? The freedom that comes as God loves us and then because he loves us, he gives us these commands to live a joyful life that honors him. He get to, get to live a joyful life. He, God loves us enough. He sets us up and then he says, hey, here are my commands. Here's how you live a life that is for me and honors me. And it begins by, it begins by loving God only. By, by loving God only. And so when we look at that first command in verse 3, here's really, it's, it's, there's no other gods. Have no other gods. Church, is it right of God to demand our total allegiance? Absolutely. It is right of him. There's none like him. Who else could unleash the judgments that we've seen in, in, in Exodus? Who else has control over the earth and the, and the sea that could split the Red Sea? Who else could provide food and water for his people, the millions of his people to consume? Is our strong God, our holy and awesome God and church. There is none like him. 
He won't share his glory. Therefore, our love for him is exclusive. He is exclusive and unique, and so our love for him is exclusive and unique and takes priority over everything else in our life. He gets our best thoughts, our best affection, our best actions. He gets our whole being. That's why David, in light of this, in Psalm 108, verse 1, he says, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with my whole being. He would have no other gods. And the second command would have no idols. No idols. In verses 4 through 6 here, see, we worship the creator and not anything created. Not anything that we can craft with our own hands or, or, or concoct in our own mind here. And this applies not only to like those ancient, you know, uh, uneducated uh, uh, people. Or the tribal people of our day, because what we stereotypically think of like having idols are those like wooden trinkets, you know, with a shrine that somebody in a, you know, in a grass hut is worshiping or somebody in their home that just doesn't know any better. And when we think of Noahs, we're like, oh, well, we're not like that. And yet the truth of it is, is that as one theologian of 500 years ago, a guy named John Calvin, he famously said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. In our heart here, there's like conveyor belts just going, we are constantly creating things other than God to worship. Things of our own doing, things of our own intelligence. All of us are good at one of two things, of either reducing God down to something that we can grasp and control ourselves or creating ideas of of our own thinking that seem to be more intelligent or more enlightened than anybody else. We're just fooling ourselves in that way. Instead of the wooden statues of a different era, a different culture in our pockets and around our home, we now have screens in our pocket and around our home. Instead of worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars, our life revolves around our kids or some other person. These church, these even in themselves are idols that steal the worship that belongs to God only. You know, and, and with, this, with, with this command here in these verses, unlike any of the others, what's unique here is that God lays out a warning and a blessing for the obedience or the, or the refusal to obey these words. Failure in this, in this regard to not have any idols can have generational consequences of people walking away from the Lord, but obedience brings an unstoppable, indescribable love that is channeled from God to us and to the people around us. See, our love for God then must take precedence. It takes priority and it takes precedence over everything else that wants, even demands our attention and our affections. Church, we feel the pressure of this all the time, don't we? Those things that are demanding of our time and our talent and our treasure. We can't seem to get involved in anything these days that doesn't demand everything that we have. Social media is designed to keep you coming back for more all the time. Looking for wants, looking for comments, looking for uh, information. It just is demanding of our time. Shows now on TV, it's like every show they create ends on a cliffhanger, don't they? It's so much that you're you're left thinking about it. We're binge watching. the, The character developments and the plot and everything are so awesome. And it just keeps us coming back, wanting more and more time, more and more affection, more and more of our thoughts. Our extracurricular activities, from our kids' sports to community involvement, anything outside these, uh, uh, or anything like extracurricular activities, 
even though they are not necessarily bad things, inherently bad, they make really bad idols. They can't bear up under the weight of worship that only God can take. They must take a backseat to our worship of God. If we find this morning that, that, you're, that you're too busy for God, you're too busy to spend time with Him, you're too busy to get in your Bible, you're too busy to, to serve, you're too busy to love the Lord, then, then church, let me just say, your thinking is backwards in that. We're not too busy for the Lord, you're too busy for that idol. God doesn't get cut out of our time, the idol gets cut out. See, for God is jealous for our time. He's jealous for our worship. He's jealous for our talent. As we see here, the consequences are real, but the blessings are eternal. So he demands, he calls us to love him only, even in how we worship, how we worship him exclusively, and how we create idols. And then that third command in verse 7 of not taking his name in vain. Now look here for a second, nod your head. If you think that taking the Lord's name in vain or using his name as a cuss word is a violation of this verse, of this command. Think so? Some of y'all are nodding off because you're sleeping. And others of you are engaged. Okay. It is, for sure it is. But that is not the only thing that he's speaking of. You think, well, at least I don't use those words. I've cleaned up my language. I've got it. He's speaking of something higher here, too. Remember, these are vertical. Not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Verse 7 says he's taking us upwards. What he's getting at is how we talk about God in his presence and how we talk to him in his presence. Are we coming reverentially in awe before him? So the, the, the Israelites, they had this immense privilege to know God and to know his name, didn't they? He had chosen them. He had set his life upon them. But hey, this great privilege was not to be misused. They had unparalleled access, unlike any other people in, uh, in the history of time up to that time. Though complex, right, to come into his presence, uh, all the laws and different things that we'll get into here. It was an immense privilege, but it was not to be misused. So too for us, we who know Christ, we who stand in this grace, who have unlimited access, the veil has been torn into, it is not to be misused. Though God is our friend, though we are familiar with him, though we can come to him and we don't have to be polished, we don't have to you know, speak in King James language, we don't have to you know, come and, and have everything all together. We don't just traipse into his presence. We speak of him honorably, and when we speak of the Lord and about the Lord and what he is teaching us, we must be very, very careful. That's why we come to the word, and the word is what gives us uh, our guidance on this. We must be careful of just saying things uh, flippantly like, well, God told me to do this, or I feel like God is leading me to do blank. Church, we just have to be very careful. Yes, does the Lord uh, 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 speak to us? Yes, does He teach us from His Word? Yes, does He give us direction? Yes, is the Spirit convicting us and calling to mind the Word of God? Absolutely. But we just need to be very careful to be speaking of the Lord and what He would do or what He would say. Though He is familiar, though He is close, God is still holy and just. And so we speak reverentially, we speak honorably of the Lord as we seek to love Him exclusively with everything that we have, both in our thoughts and how we speak and how we spend our time, which is really where the fourth command to remember the Sabbath in verses 8 to 11, where He takes us vertical. 
See, under the Mosaic Covenant now, the Israelites were, uh, were meant to follow the pattern that God had established in creation, to remember the Sabbath and to, uh, to take the seventh day off and not to do any work. Six days of work and one day of rest. In church, this was a gracious gift of God to His people, isn't it? Especially, where did, these, where did they just come out of? The, the Israelites here, they came out of slavery. Work, 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 work. No rest, unless they got hurt or sick or something. And even then, who knows, they probably had work that was brutal. From the time the sun came up to the sun came down and everywhere in between, all they knew was a life of burdensome, brutal work. And now God is coming and establishing a new pattern who is in control. It was their weekly reminder of their limits. That we are finite and God, uh, and God is infinite. It is God who is sovereign and we are not. Yes, he calls us into the work. Yes, we embrace his work. Yes, but we need a day to slow down just like they did, to reorient their priorities. I've heard one pastor, a friend of mine, he describes the Sabbath as a, a day like no other. Now think of this Sabbath, a day like no other, where they had a day where this was not a day to do work, and so the rest of the Mosaic Law would, would lay some things out, and then the Pharisees, when we get to the time of Jesus, they had made it so complex that it wasn't a day of rest or no work, because you had to work to not do the work, to, so you wouldn't work on the day you weren't supposed to work. And it just became so convoluted when this, the Sabbath, the rest is a gift from the Lord. Though we're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant, so these uh, laws don't have a specific application for us anymore, we're now under the New Covenant under Jesus, who is himself the Lord of the Sabbath. See, he is the one who uh, is our rest. He is the resurrection, and, and he is our rest for salvation and for eternity and even in this life. And so now, instead of ending our week to, to rest from the work we've done, we begin our week with a day like no other. Now, the applications of this are different than the way that was for the Israelites here. But what a joy that God would even call us on the beginning of the week to gather with God's people, doing what we will do for all eternity, celebrating and worshiping the one who is our rest. See, when God speaks, we listen. When God works, we worship. And we worship him only in how we spend our time and our talent and our treasure even as we aren't seeking to work everything out on our own, especially our salvation. So these laws here, as we come to them, these laws aren't just like, you know, a behavior checklist to look at it and to come to it like the rich young ruler and be like, yep, I've done that. Yep, I've done that. Yep, I've done that. I've done all these things. Like they're a list of house rules. And we have house rules. Yeah. Some of you parents are like, oh, yeah, we have house rules. Sit down and be quiet. No. And stay out of the pantry. <laughs> we have these house rules, right? And that's, they're, they're good. They get bound guests or others that would come in. We have these house rules. But they're more than just mere checklists. They're, they're to gauge our heart. Are we, are, do we truly indeed love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And how can we even know that? Is it just a checklist that we come to? Well, here, let me just offer you some uh, statements, and you can, in your seat, you can affirm them or, or, uh, or maybe deny them. See where, where you're saying, as we ask the question, how can I know that I love God only? Let me just make these statements, and you can ask the Lord to do His work in your heart. You affirm this statement. 
I trust Christ alone for salvation. How about this one? I'm convinced that the gospel is God's ultimate solution. I am most satisfied in Jesus. I believe the Bible contains all I need for life and godliness. I turn to Jesus when I'm low or in need. These, these statements and there's others, I think, that are great for us to, to, to really wrestle with, to see, God, where do I stand? Where is my heart in these things? And if you're hesitant on any of them, don't believe a lie of the enemy to, that is going to bring shame and condemnation, but just bring them before the Lord and say, God, help me to grow. Uh, weed out whatever is uh, in my heart, these roots that, that are causing me to, 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 to not love you. And bring them to the Lord and bring them out in your small group this week. Bring them out. Talk about these things if you've hesitated in anywhere. But remember this as you, as you come to these. God, these are these and his glory. They honor him. And, and, and the remainder of the, the commands now uh, teach us how to honor those around us. As we, as we go vertical and as we love God only, it also then spills over into how we honor the people around us. And so when God speaks, we listen by loving God only. But here's the second point, and, and it captures the rest of the, the commands. We love others freely. When God speaks, we listen by loving others freely. And so the charge and the commands 5 through 10 or verses 12 through 17 then are horizontal. Others, and it begins in the home. See that? It begins in the home. Verse, verse 12 now. Honor your father and your mother. Now, you parents who have kids sitting next to you, I saw some elbows. Like, listen to that. It says this. Honoring father and mother. See, a culture of honor, a culture of love starts in the home. It starts in the home. As we look up to God, we look past the, the parents who raised us. We, we see the parents who raised us, especially those that have raised us in the faith. Those who have done their best to disciple us and to point us to Christ. Those parents that have loved us enough, imperfectly for sure, but they've pointed us to the Lord. And you know what? Even if your parents are unbelievers, or even if they, they weren't great, but they were involved in your life, you can honor the place that they had in your formation. You can honor the place and the way that God has used them in your life. And if you're following Christ today, and even that, even, even if they were a bad example, God has used them to make you the person you are today. But I know I'm not... Pastor, I know in a room like this that a command like this is full of knots. Because some of you have had some really horrendous parents in your life. Those who've not only uh, uh, abdicated their role of, of raising you in the faith, but have totally abandoned it and, 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 and maybe even been abusive, maybe even been harmful to you. Where there's criminal things that have happened. And so I know that this is wrought with all kinds of knots that's not lost on me. And I would love to talk more. We don't, the time, uh, we don't have the time right now to talk through all this, but I'd love to, to meet with you, to get you help, to, for you to talk about it in your small group as we look. How, how does this apply even in our day now? Because the reality is this verse isn't just for like young kids. Not just for like little kids under the age of 18 that are in, in our home, but it's for all of us and for all of our life. Like there's a thing here that's extending out where he's saying, hey, as long as you live, you children, you Israelites who are in the promised land, you are to live this out and honor your parents and the example that they set even long beyond they're gone. 
You know, the original readers of this would have been those in the book of Joshua uh, that had entered into the promised land. Moses had written to them, and he's saying, hey, the faith in which called them out of Egypt that led them here is the same type of faith that we are to live. And so it's not simply for kids, but here's the idea that we would follow the Lord, we would honor our parents, and there's a promise attached to it, right? That we would live long, presumably a prosperous life in the promised land so that your days may be long here in the land now this is this it's not how we use this phrase now you know like oh man that was a long day right you obey your parents you're gonna have some long days you know not like he's not mean he's meaning like a long presumably prosperous life in the promised land and so like i said our love for others it starts in the home church. Our uh, culture of honor starts in the home. And so parents among us, let me, let me ask you this. Do honor and love f- flow freely more than how to play baseball, more than how to play soccer, more than how to cook or sew or to get dressed or to change a tire? We are to train our children in how to follow Christ. And so we show them how. And one of the ways is how do we speak of the Lord and how do we speak of one another? How, how do we demonstrate this uh, speaking honorably of our parents? You know, if, we, if we're constantly grumbling about them or our parents, what do you think will be replicated? How will they uh, imitate us as they get older? Kind of a sobering question to ask uh, of us as parents. Is the way that I talk about my parents is the way that I want my kids to talk about me when they're grown and older. That one like, cuts to the heart, doesn't it? That's, that, that's sobering, even, uh, even for me. So I've said it before, our culture is created by what we celebrate and what we tolerate. Are you celebrating uh, the honorable, loving things that your kids do? Are you celebrating and appreciating their strengths, their gifts, what they uh, do, how they are honoring the Lord? Because if you honor them, they will honor you, and more importantly, they will honor the Lord. But what we can't as parents do, we can't tolerate dishonor. Lashing out, allowing kids to talk back at us is setting our kids up to fail. It's setting them up to fail. We have to establish real expectations with appropriate consequences. For dishonoring them, lashing out, just yelling at them is not the right way. But it's celebrating and honoring and having appropriate consequences when, uh, when necessary. Maybe, you know, I'm a parent. I felt stuck in this my own self. Maybe Reach out, bring it up in your small group. We would love to help. We have many in this church who've walked this road, who've, who've, who've done it well, or who maybe have some mistakes to even share, saying, hey, don't do what we did. But they've walked this road and are willing to help. Maybe they're a step ahead of you. Maybe they're in the same step with you. Maybe their kids are grown and gone. My wife and I, we've benefited from many of you, your example and your direct counsel in these things. But doesn't the sound of uh, our homes flowing freely with honor and love, doesn't that sound glorious? Doesn't that sound glorious of having a home like this? Isn't that, that's, that's a place that we want to come and find refuge. That's a place where we want to, to come and be a part of. But here's the thing. See, love flowing freely doesn't end at our home, at our property lines. It extends to our neighbors. It extends beyond to the people that we encounter. And so while, while this loving others freely begins in the home, those next uh, commands, 9 through 10, or verses 13 through 16, really uh, are a package deal. They kind of come together, and they can be condensed down to like this. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. Don't take what isn't, what isn't yours. Don't take someone's life, their wife, their things, or their honor. 
Don't, they, you didn't give them to this. And so really minimal elaboration is needed in these words, aren't they? We, we, we pretty much get it. There might be some nuances that we could uh, talk about, and there will be lots of case laws of how these, these things really, uh, how can, so how could we hate somebody enough to steal them from him? How could we hate somebody enough to take his life or take his spouse or, or their things or their honor to take the truth from them, to dishonor them, to speak in a way that would hurt them, whether through lie or deception, whatever it might be, in speaking to them in a way that would harm them? See, it's really, it's really what it boils down to, and it's where the New Testament takes us. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Paul to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, he would elaborate on these things. Listen to this from Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, he's, you've heard it said, uh, to those of old, you shall not murder. He's referring back to the chapter we just read, Exodus 20. He said, you've heard that you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. See, murder the hand starts long before that and murder in the heart through anger and bitterness towards somebody. It starts here in the heart long before it comes out in our actions. He goes on in Matthew 5, verse 27. He said, you've heard that it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So long before the act happens, it happens in our mind. And then he goes on for there, this radical amputation that even if it's, even if it's in your mind here, you need to cut things out that would lead you to sin. Make that radical amputation. Your eye causes you to sin, guess what? Pluck it out. Your arm causes you to sin, <laughs> Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Better to go into heaven amputated than into hell with your whole body. Other commands of stealing and lying and bearing false witness, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, like I said, elaborates on these in uh, Ephesians 4, teaching us that a saved life is a changed life. See, those who, who God has set his love on, they live now according to his ways. If you're still living your life, if your life is no different than an unbeliever's, if your life is not changed in how you think and speak and what you do, if it's not changed, then we have to ask a question, well, do I have a new heart? Has my mind been renewed for a saved life as a changed life? So in Ephesians 4, Paul's saying, uh, assuming that you are saved, put off your old self, with, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires. But put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, here's this, therefore, this is Ephesians 4, uh, 23, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Why do we speak the truth? Why do we not lie? Why do we not bear false witness? Well, because lying to others not only helps them, it also, uh, it, it, it also uh, harms us. He's speaking to our unity in Christ. And so anytime we would bear false witness, we would lie. It would, it would, it would cause a division between us. And so instead, let us just be truth tellers, speaking the truth in love. He'll go on then in verse 28 of Ephesians 4, he says, Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Don't steal. Don't take other people's things. You do the work to, uh, to uh, produce it and to achieve it yourself. Don't, don't take other people's things, but then it's not just to accumulate it for me. It's all mine. It's all mine. 
rather so that way you can love freely and give it all away freely. And so what is, what, is, what is Jesus, what is Paul, what is he getting at here? It's not merely in our behaviors. This isn't merely a, a, a behavior checklist. But he's setting a moral foundation, getting to the heart of why we do things and what we're to do instead. And so that's where the last, the 10th commandment in, the, in verse 17 really gets at then. And that command, do not covet. He, so here's, here's how these all fit together. He would say, hey, don't take somebody's life, wife, their things or their honor. But here's verse 17. And don't even want it. Don't want it so much that you would be willing to take it from them. Don't, don't, don't even want it. Their house, their spouse, their servants, their animals, nothing. Instead, rather, let us praise God that he has given it to them. And let us praise God for the things that he has given to us. Your spouse, your house, the co-workers you have, the things that you've been given of the Lord. Thank God that he has provided it for you. See, church, what's behind this, this attitude, this heart of, of coveting? It's discontent. In one, one sense, it's discontent that those thoughts of, I need more. And in, this, in another sense, it's a, a, what's behind it is pride. I deserve more. I deserve more, and we're all prone to this, aren't we? We see these things crop up in our life all the time. We walk into someone's house, they have us over, and we're so great, they're being hospitable, and we walk into their home, and all of a sudden, like, starts popping in. Man, that's a really nice mirror in their bathroom. I need one of those. Man, my house is too small. I deserve a bigger house like this with more space, and if God, if you'd give me that, I would, I would host them. We walk out of our house after a fight with our husband and, and we see our, our neighbor's husband mowing the grass over there and we think, man, I need me a husband like that to actually do something around here. I deserve to be loved. I deserve to be pampered. And man, these, these, these things, they crop up, don't they? I'm not reading into your minds. I just know what happens. We're frustrated at work. We're frustrated with our coworkers. We start thinking, you know what, I need a new job. I don't deserve to work in a place like this. I need, I need more, I need people that can actually stand, people that will work, people that will, you know, do with it what I tell them to do. We start looking for a job. We start looking for something else. We're looking for a way to run away. We start, we're driving down I-35. The highway of temptation, I'm telling you. <laughs> we're driving down I-35, and we see a newer model of the truck that, uh, that we're driving in. I think, man, I need one of those. I don't deserve this, this you know, thing that I'm driving in. And we just start to covet. But church, here's the thing. God loves us so much to point out even our sinful desires. It's, it's his love as he's preparing us to live for him and live a life as he is working out his salvation in us and our sanctification uh, uh, through us. God loves us so much to point out these sinful desires that keep us from uh, loving him only and loving others freely and having meaningful relationships. He loves us enough to show us a better way, to live not according to the way world's standards even if it seems terrifying, even if it seems like you will be alone and the only person living as such, even if it seems terrifying, which it was for the Israelites, but he gives us the grace in which to draw near, the grace in which to live in this way. See, after God is speaking to the Israelites, they listened, but what were they? They were terrified, weren't they? And so after listing out these Ten Commandments, after God has speak, look at verse 18 here, as we, uh, we 
When God speaks, we listen, and we listen by fearing God fully. We fear God fully. And so look at verse 18 now. The people, they saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain spoke, and the people were afraid and trembled, do you think? Again, imagine being out in the storm. Imagine being totally exposed out there with a trumpet blasting, wide-eyed, heart racing, anxious. You would want to do as they have, have done. They, 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 they stood far off. Verse 21 says again, the people stood far off. Their instinct was to flee, to hide, to stay back. It's the fear of God that keeps them back. To where they won't draw near, they're like, hey, Moses, you listen to God, we fear, and we, we don't want to die. But church, see, the fear of God, when he lays out these commands, they are meant to keep us from sin. To point out saying, hey, don't do that. Don't, 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 your, your life is at stake. Your soul is at stake if you follow in according to your sinful patterns. We don't just go traipsing into God's presence and the law of God keeps us from sin so we don't just traipse into his presence and then be killed. See, God is perfectly holy, is he not? No such imperfection is so serious why we run from it. We flee for if our life is in danger. And when we flee from sin, when we stand back, where do we run to? We run to Christ. We run to Christ who is our covering. The one who has taken our sin uh, on himself and died on the cross for, bore the consequence that we deserved, and he gave us his righteousness. He set it upon us so that we could come near to God. Now, isn't that amazing, church? Isn't that so incredible as we think what God has done for us, that he would bring us to himself? How undeserving that God would do this great work in our hearts. We, this is the fear of God. It keeps us from sin and it makes us run towards Christ. It's to the, these words here and it's to Christ that the writer of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, he's, he's saying to, to, to believers there, he says, for you have not come to what may be touched. Referring here, they were not physically present he says, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. What a great description of what we've just read, right? He says, for even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But going on into verse 24, but you have come to Christ, the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. See, church, look here. When Jesus speaks, we listen. Jesus calls us to come to him, we come. When Jesus uh, calls us to uh, leave everything and follow him, we do so. We come to fear God, we fear him fully, and we worship him then freely. Church, this morning, do not refuse Christ. Do not refuse his commands, receive his love, and his law comes when we listen. 
that when Jesus speaks, we listen. When Jesus works, we worship. And he has been at work speaking through his word, working through his word by his spirit, even now in your heart as we are feeling the weight and the conviction of his law. But see, the Israelites stood back from the mountain, for I think they knew not this God personally and intimately, fully yet. But we now, spiritually speaking, we stand at the mountain brought here by Christ with a fearful confidence to draw near, not in our own works, not in our own righteousness, but a confidence in the righteousness of Christ now to exalt Him. And that's what we do as we, as we gather here as God's people. We gather and we can approach with confidence the throne of grace as we pray, as we sing, as we open our Bibles, as we live a life knowing that His love, His grace is what has called us and what will keep us even to the end. And so as we come, as we prepare to meet with Him, as we pray and sing, we exalt Christ in awe of His love and in fear of His holiness for holy and awesome is his name.